Pushkin. Hello, Against the Rules listeners. I'm Jacob Weisberg, co-founder and CEO of Pushkin Industries. I've worked behind the scenes with Michael Lewis on this show since it began. Against the Rules is all about what's happening to fairness in the United States, a topic that's incredibly relevant and urgent today. We thought you might be interested in a new show from Pushkin, Hearing, with Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Hearing is also about fairness. It's an interview show about building a better criminal justice system. In this episode, you'll hear Tali in conversation with New Yorker staff writer Jiang Fan talking about how the Justice Department often fundamentally misunderstands immigrant communities. Future interviews will include Senator Cory Booker, the civil rights leader Ben Jealous, and Pushkin's own Malcolm Gladwell. But it's Tali who makes this show stand out. She's a veteran of the Obama Justice Department and former general counsel to the Brooklyn District Attorney. Now, she's a candidate to become the next District Attorney of Manhattan. Hearing is a new kind of political podcast, where listeners will hear a candidate's campaign evolve as she engages in true discourse about the issues that matter most. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation, and then listen to future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for your time. The Hearing Podcast is paid for by New Yorkers for Tolly. Hey guys, can you hear me? Oh yes, hello, hi. Uh, hi, <laughs> uh, hi. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> this is Jai Young Fan, a staff writer at The New Yorker. I've been excited to talk to her for a long time because of the empathy and nuance she brings to her writing about immigrant communities and also because of her passion for food. There might or might not be a grocery delivery coming um, <laughs> at some point. I tried to find a different window of a slot for it, but I'm not sure if they totally understood me. So if that happens, I'll make it short and sweet. I just have to open the door. <laughs> I have to tell you from following you on Twitter that I actually want to know what is in that grocery delivery. I got a lobster today. So, um, yeah, so... <laughs> I first discovered Jiayoung's reporting when I read a piece she wrote a few years ago about the criminal prosecution of a community bank in Chinatown called Abacus Bank. There were intricate cultural issues to sort through in that case. Among other things, Abacus is a very small bank that primarily serves Chinatown's immigrant population, many of whom do low-wage work and don't fully understand or trust the American legal and financial systems. Jiayoung literally had a front row seat as the drama unfolded. I just remember this very, you know, elderly, kind of very stately looking judge asking the, you know, the witness, you know, our trial is not finished. You have to be back tomorrow to be on the witness stand. And I think you know, one of the guys, he works at a restaurant and he kept insisting to the judge, no, I have to go back and wash dishes tomorrow. Like I, that, that's how I earn money. And the judge, unaccustomed to being openly disobeyed in this way, kept saying, do you understand? Like, you know, you are in defiance of the court if you don't come back tomorrow. And he kept saying, I try my best. I try my best. I thought that was so illustrative of, you know, the different priorities that were kind of um, at war in the courtroom and of how um, for this immigrant, the court system is almost irrelevant to him. He thinks if I'm not washing dishes tomorrow, I am not earning money, can't pay rent. And, you know, my life in America is over. My goal on this show is to invite you into my thought processes as I try to understand and answer 
complicated questions about legality and leadership and how to use prosecutorial discretion in service of justice. And when I read Jayong Fan's reporting on the Abacus case, it was clear that her unique perspective helped her convey the complexity of the story. It was remarkable for me to be in that courtroom because I felt quite split-brained. Jayang herself is Chinese-American, and we have a shared history of coming to America as young children. As you heard in the first episode of the show, on Christmas Eve of 1979, my mother and I arrived at JFK and stood in the customs line awaiting an uncertain future. A little more than a decade later, on the 4th of July, Jayang and her mom did the same thing. Like me, Jayang has visceral memories of how confusing it can be to learn English and function in American culture while living in an immigrant family. Her lived experience enabled her to capture the full range of perspectives in the Abacus story. It was an interesting story that was really at the intersection, I think, of um, so many different issues, both when it comes to, you know, immigrant community, the ignorance of law enforcement to really comprehend the inner workings of this immigrant community and um, of how little trust I think the, um, the immigrant community had in American mainstream institutions of justice to be able to understand their needs. I'm Tali Farhadian Weinstein and this is Hearing. Today on the show, my conversation with Jayang Fan about doing justice in immigrant communities, both legally and narratively. For Jayang, Abacus was just one of many stories about New Yorkers who find themselves caught in the vast gulf between the American mainstream and the realities of immigrant life. There are people who are unaccustomed to being listened to. I was going back and looking at one of my favorite articles that you've written about ghost scams. Right. Um, a ghost scam is a scam that usually happens within the Chinatown community. And it's when you are approached, the targets tend to be middle-aged to elderly, ethnically Chinese women, and they're told that they somehow have been captured by an evil spirit, there's something very ominous in their future, and that they need to take immediate steps um, to ward off the evil spirit. And essentially, the scammer wants to be led to the victim's fortunes. Sometimes, you know, it's cash, jewelry, um, any valuables. The scammer then says that she needs to, it's usually a she, she needs to bless these items and she'll give the items right back. But in so doing, the scammer switches out the valuables for something of equal um, weight and then disappears before the victim has uh, the chance to figure out what uh, is going on. I was struck by how you described a witness interview that you observed. And you were talking about a victim of one of these scams, I think you called her Mrs. Wong, telling her story. And First, you said, well, she was uncomfortable because the interview was in Mandarin and she was more comfortable in a different Chinese language. But she also, you said, more than that, she seemed unused to being listened to in any language. And I wanted to start by talking to you about that, how you listen to someone who is not used to being listened to in any language. Right. Um, the victims of this scam 
tend to be, I mean, they're, they're predominantly women, um, and they tend to be a population that are not accustomed to be heard and they're not accustomed to um, being visible really in any way. And that's what makes them, I think, such convenient targets. And that's also what makes the crime so difficult to investigate. Part of why they succumb to this um, scam is that they feel their existence in this country usually takes place in um, Chinatown communities, kind of in in the Western um, world or outside of China, um, they feel that their existence is quite conditional and is you know, very, very uncertain. And that's why when they hear that evil spirits are bedeviling them, they tend to believe it because there's so little certainty in their life. And they're just trying to hang on to every possibility of saving themselves from um, harm. So to compound their loss, when they have been devastated by such a scam, they, they don't know who they can turn to and who they can um, trust. And that includes you know, the police, that includes kind of any members of law enforcement, and that includes uh, me, um, the, <laughs> um, a reporter whose motives are, I think, probably a little bit unclear to them. Why do I want to talk to them? What do I hope to get out of it? how am I so different from the scammer? You know, like the scammer was a stranger and here I am another stranger wanting to come into their life. And I happen to be the daughter of someone who in all respects belonged to this population. Uh, my mother is a Chinese immigrant. She, um, never lived in Chinatown, but, you know, when I was growing up, we were very fond of visiting Chinatown and has lived her entire life in the U S with the sense of lurking danger. Are you open about that with the people that you're talking to as a way to build trust with them? Or are you sort of talking about how you organize yourself in order to be able to make these connections? I do try to be open with them. I mean, not in a way that feels, you know, gratuitously ingratiating, but you know, once we start a conversation, so many of those conversations, I think at least the first part of them are just a journey to a place of trust. The person I'm speaking to um, needs to feel like I am not someone who may place them in a position of danger and that speaking to me does not imperil or endanger them in any way. So especially if we're speaking in uh, Chinese, I will you know, have reason to explain why I, I can speak Chinese, even though I am ostensibly a Western reporter. And that gives me an opportunity to um, give my own background. One of the things that struck me in your story about those scams is how it makes a victim feel and the kind of inhibitions that it brings. And so I thought maybe I would talk to you a little bit about the experience that you described at the beginning of the pandemic. This is something that you wrote about on Twitter and it sort of went viral um, where you described yourself as, you know, being on the receiving end of a very ugly racialized slur. Right. It was, I think, in um, in March and like everyone else, I was frazzled and uh, um scared of, you know, this virus that really had taken New York City uh, as hostage. And one night I was going out to 
fetch actually a bag of rice from a neighbor's house because there's a rumor going around that a lockdown might be coming and that I literally might not be able to leave my house. So I wanted to get grain. And at the same time, I mean, the pandemic was particularly scary for me because I have a mother in a nursing home and I'm in regular contact with her uh, health aide who basically lives in the nursing home with her. So as I was um, going to <laughs> fetch my rice, um, take out the trash, I was all also speaking in Chinese unselfconsciously with my mother's aide who can only speak uh, Mandarin and uh, completely sort of <laughs> juggling um, you know the many things uh, in my in my head and that's when I heard you know this voice calling me a Chinese bitch and a kind of a you know string of other vitriol that followed it was an incident that was so jarring that I felt compelled to record it on Twitter, which sometimes um, is uh, not the best idea. But at the moment, I think I wanted to document it because it felt so surreal. And because, you know, I live alone, my only other family member is my mother. So, and obviously I, you know, I was in kind of quarantine mode like everybody else. So in that moment, Twitter did feel like the only community that I had. And being able to assert that this had happened was sort of the only power I had. And I think the only way I could reclaim that narrative rather than just be, you know, this victim of it. You said at the time that you weren't angry, you were afraid, which I thought, mm. I, I thought took a lot of courage to, to come out and say that and to say, you know, um, how it sort of changed the way that you were going to move through the world. And then you said this really interesting thing you said, and you did it so quickly. You said your reaction was extreme caution and radical compassion, those four words, extreme caution, radical compassion. If I may ask, did you change your habits? Did you change where you walked or how you walked? I think I thought to myself at the time that I would speak less Chinese in public. This ended up not working out for me because I'm in such regular contact with my mother's health aid. So I would be speaking Chinese um, in the grocery line. And, and if you recall back in you know um, March and April, sometimes those lines outside the grocery could be quite long. Um, and those were the only times where you were in kind of hearing distance of strangers. And unfortunately, you know, the incident in March wasn't the only one. I, you know, speaking Chinese um, has not really worked out for me. What an extraordinary thing that in New York City, you felt that this was something that you had to at least think about regulating. Uh, and I, I think that describing it as extreme caution is so powerful because it reminded me of after 9-11, my, mm -hmm. my grandfather, who was already an old man when 9-11 happened. Uh, we, we are immigrants from Iran. And he was so nervous that he just basically stopped speaking in public. To be speaking a Middle Eastern language was just terrifying to him. Like that was his version of extreme caution, to use your words. He also took to wearing a Yankees cap all the time, <laughs> even though if he has ever watched a baseball game, I wouldn't, you know, that would be news to me. And, uh, you know, that's, I, th I think it's important to sort of recognize uh, how demoralizing these experiences can be, and that they really can sort of change our behavior. Yeah. Right. And then feel sometimes um, like I have, I myself was at fault when I forgot and spoke Chinese in, in these grocery lines and was subjected to um, racist remarks again. Like, if you think about it, that seems so warped. 
But I think that certainly, you know, for my mother's generation, it always came down to um, personal responsibility. I think for your grandfather too, that it's somehow their job to wear the Yankees cap or to uh, make sure that, you know, they do not speak their native language in public, because I think they never felt they um, had the the power to ask anything of this kind of alien country that they found themselves. So the only control they had was over themselves and their actions. And it both seems so prudent, but also um, you know devastating that they um, never dared to have any expectations for the world around them, which in truth is the deformed one, not them. And that's exactly right embracing that kind of power is a privilege that I don't think would have ever occurred to him. But I think it's really important for us to understand the mechanism of how that happens. I think because they have so little control, for them, it feels like then they need sort of a a cheat sheet of how to navigate this country. Which is why I think, I mean, you know, those second two um, words, radical compassion, what I meant by radical compassion is, I mean, even for that man who in that you know, moment, um, uh, you know, really did not look very kindly upon me, I thought that in the middle of a pandemic, it's very possible that he has just, you know, that week lost his job or is anxious over a parent who um, is in a nursing home. And for reasons that I cannot fully you know, comprehend or even imagine might be suffering. And that is not to exonerate him for what he did or to offer any kind of excuse for racism. But I think the most corrosive part of racism is its dehumanizing effect. And I think when we look back on in- these incidents, it's both important to emphasize accountability, but also to humanize the incident and see all the actors in the incident as people with vulnerabilities. You know, everything you're saying, it just, it resonates so much with me. And I find it interesting that as you describe that, you're using words from the criminal justice system. So you're not trying to exonerate him. You're talking about holding on to a sense of accountability, um, but also honing in on vulnerability. And, you know, one of the hard things about being a prosecutor that doesn't get said out loud often enough is that you're you're mostly meeting people at a very low moment in their life, whether they are the victim or the witness who saw something awful or the defendant. And just understanding the vulnerability of everybody who is involved in that encounter is, in my view, always going to help you just understand what a just result would look like better than if you had not. And it's when you lose your connection to everybody's vulnerability, not as an excuse and not to exonerate and not to sort of rank one person's vulnerability over another. But I think as soon as you lose that is when the system becomes, in the word that you used, uh, dehumanizing. I think that's exactly right. Um, And I could see mob justice descending um, as soon as I took the incident to Twitter, which is why, you know, um, I've always been ambivalent about the platform, even as I'm on it, because I think the kind of justice that they wanted to enforce was one that 
really saw the incident as a war between good and evil. And I thought it was just so absurd that that dynamic should come to preside over an incident that is so complicated. I want to ask you something different. Uh, you have expressed your ambivalence about using Twitter, and uh, and I have confessed to being a fan of yours on Twitter. <laughs> and I think that part of one of the things that draws me to you is I don't know that many other adult women other than myself <laughs> who talk about their mom <laughs> as much. As you as don't I know, do. <laughs> but, but you don't know me well enough to know how yeah. that hits home um, and how uh, my mom is usually there. Like, it's rare <laughs> that she's not here right now. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could just sort of speak a little bit about that. Um, that relationship seems so important to you and to your self-understanding. Growing up, I think my mother, because she didn't, could not speak English fluently and because she was not very proud of her station in this country, she was a doctor in China. And once she arrived in the States, she could no longer you know, practice medicine and she had to you know, work a series of menial labor jobs to make ends meet. She always felt that she only deserved to stay in the shadows, that if I do go on to accomplish anything, those accomplishments should be where the spotlight is. And her shame about what she perceives to be her lowly stature is something that also, I think, over the years have almost absorbed into my bloodstream. And our relationship, I mean, we, you know, I'm her only daughter, I'm her only child, has always seemed to me intensely private. And in that privacy is so much embarrassment about who we are and our interactions had always felt like it was undeserving of any sort of, you know, public airing. I think in speaking you know, so um, plainly and so often about our relationship, I think it's, again, my way of asserting that this relationship and the trivial minutiae of our relationship should not be something that I feel ashamed of. And even her sometimes, you know, hilariously erratic grammar and her priorities that I buy, you know, certain groceries and I, you know, her insistence that I buy them on sale, all those things that she has always felt should be, you know, absolutely hidden from the sculpture of the American dream that I ultimately present to the world, to me feels so American in some fundamental way. And I am proud of her in a way I think that she doesn't completely um, uh, comprehend. Shining a light on a relationship is the only way I know how to show my pride in her. I'm really proud of my mother, too. And I think that's what I felt coming across, uh, even in the, you know, sometimes sort of comical way that you <laughs> will sort right. of give us little snippets of your interactions. And I think that that pride has a lot to do with being an immigrant. And for me, at least, I don't know if this resonates with you feeling like the things that I'm able to do in this world, it's not just that they're because of her, but she's really at my side. And I don't want her to be invisible. Making her visible feels like an act of truth telling. Right. No, I was struck by something else that you had written. Uh, it, it was a it was sort of re a reflection about uh, Charlottesville. And first of all, if I might just say, I thought it was also very funny. This, this incident that you described at the beginning is being a kid and learning about <laughs> Robert E. Lee. Right. So I remember learning about the American Civil War for the first time and 
in the middle of these American names with syllables that at the time I could barely wrap my tongue around was General Robert E. Lee, and the name Lee excited me、um, right then and there because I thought he is this important. General, and I was convinced that he must be Chinese because Lee was a very common last name、um, in Chinese, and one I did not know could exist in English. And I thought that this gave me some purchase in、um, American history. I love that story so much because it it demonstrates both the hunger and the desperation to be a part of the story, but also. Your instinct is right. Why? Why shouldn't a, a Chinese person be an important part of American history? It's just you know it took some time to catch up. So I, I love that you that you had that thought、um, at the same time that you were sort of looking for belonging. It, it you know reminds me of every time that you know I would come across the name of a Jewish person who did something important, like you know Sandy Koufax. Like oh, we were here, <laughs> we were a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever we means、uh, in that context, I, and I was struck by how you described in your reporting about、uh, Charlottesville. You said that an immigrant, you know, and an immigrant kid, you were talking about,、um, is both an outsider and an insider at at the same time, right? She's the keen observer and the adroit imitator. In her imagination, she's at once putative insider and perpetual outsider. I mean, when you're a child of immigrants, you experience what I think all of us experience as we grow older: this role reversal between you and your parents. But when you are an immigrant child, you usually learn the language quicker, and you find yourself having to navigate the world for your parents. So, in a way, you have a very intense. Sense of your insiderness, because <laughs> in contrast to your parents,、um, you feel like you're the one leading the herd forward. So at home,、um, you're often frustrated by,、uh, you know, how much they are living in the past and living in the old country. And then in the classroom, in the outside world, especially, you know, if、uh, you like me, you know, are an Asian immigrant, look different、um, from most of your classmates. You feel still very keenly the sense of difference. And for me, certainly, I knew that in the classroom, I was still some distance away from being a True American, and that seemed to me as a child incredibly important because that was something that my parents insisted on. You know that they they had already lost the chance to be a true American, and to whatever extent possible, they wanted the opportunity for me to be as close、um, to a true American、uh, as possible. And as I've grown older. I think the biggest change is that I've come to question fundamentally the definition of a true American and why it is that we had to live at the altar of the true American、um, growing up in an immigrant family. I find that I depend on my experience as an immigrant to understand myself, even as I become more and more of an insider by so many measures. And and I would ask you that question. I mean, so now you are a staff writer at the New Yorker, at perhaps the most venerable institution of journalism, or certainly one of them in the country, possibly the ultimate insider、uh, inside of your profession. What does that feel like to use the voice of the New Yorker and this institution that was built by people, you know, without your experiences and who don't look like you? That that's a question that I think I I I live with. I think on one level, 
my mother's voice tells me how lucky I am to be part of this institution. I think for her, my association with it is my, you know, limited achievement of the American dream. And of course, over the years, I've absorbed, you know, that sense of trepidation and insecurity and daily questioning about whether I truly deserve to be part of this institution. So that's one, you know, part of my brain. The other part of me thinks isn't it my responsibility to contribute the uniqueness of my voice in the hopes that, you know, whatever tiny contributions I can make can sculpt the institution into something better? The classic New Yorker voice, um, the house style, is one in which the reporter is not so much in the frame. Um, the story is told in, you know, incredibly clear placidly toned prose. And we would like to think that, you know, that voice is the one that's the most just, but I think that's the voice of power. If you already have power, you don't need to be waving your hands and keep saying, I'm here, I'm here. You're already assured that everyone will listen to you without you having to raise your voice. For me, being one of the few Asian American writers at the magazine is to I think, acknowledge the fact that um, I'm writing from a different place than many of my predecessors, and that when I'm interviewing, you know, the victims of um, the ghost scam, the fact that I can commiserate with them changes the fundamental quality of my reporting, and I think it would be disingenuous of me not to make that clear to the reader. So I think being true to my voice as an Asian American reporter in 2020 is different than what it must have meant for um, John Updike in um, the 1960s. And my trying to imitate his voice is probably doing a disservice to the magazine and also, I think, a falsity to myself. I really just completely delighted to connect with you. The way you talk about your mom and the way you talk about food is why I felt I had to meet you. I mean, that story was not lost on me that it was about a sack of rice. I mean, I cannot tell you what went on in my house because rice is a staple of Persian food as well. Right. So are we going to be able to get the kind of basmati rice we want in the quantities that we're going to need it? For months, my parents were living with us, so we really had to eat rice every day. So I, I get it. I understand why you had to go out in the night to get the sack of rice. I know. I, know. I think I had a loaf of frozen um, bread in my freezer, but that just would have been so inadequate. Um. No, that's that's like desperate times. We, we... Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers for Tali and Jai Young Fan's appearance on the show does not constitute a political endorsement by her or the New Yorker. I am running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tally4da.com to learn more about my campaign. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Hearing.